this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an NHS emergency medicine doctor who grew up in Afghanistan during the Soviet invasion. He was inspired to go into medicine by the doctor he met in a Pakistani refugee camp as a sick child. Aged just 15, he travelled to the UK illegally with little English, but incredibly made it to Cambridge University. He went on to study at Imperial College and Harvard and qualified as a doctor. He's also the founder of the charity Aryan Telemedicine, which connects medical staff in war zones with doctors in the US and the UK who volunteer their expertise. For his charity work, he's won multiple awards, including the UN Global Hero Award and the Rotary International Peace Award. His book, In the Wars, From Afghanistan to the UK and Beyond, A Refugee's Story of Survival and Saving Lives, has just been published. Dr. Wahid Aryan, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an inspiring story and I think best served by you just telling it to us from from the beginning. You were born in Afghanistan. I was born in Afghanistan in during the Afghan-Soviet conflict in 1983. The first five years were spent as hiding from the daily rockets, the bombs and the shellings. Um, a couple of um, fond memories that I have from my childhood, one is being taken to a local park by my mother with my cousins to have an ice cream. Another one is my father bringing in a big kite, kneeling down and giving me that kite in his military uniform and for him to disappear because he had to flee the military service, which was compulsory. And that usually meant a death sentence because he had to fight his fellow Afghans, those who were opposing the Soviet-backed government, the Mujahideen. And the reason that park stands out, as you describe in your book, is that literally the only time in that snatch of your childhood that you actually had any freedom to do so, because the rest of the time you were hiding from bombs. Absolutely. That is the reality for people in conflict zones. I'm not the only person. They don't have toys to play with. They hardly have any food, uh, not much clean water. And they were the realities of our day-to-day life. Our mother was looking after a big family. Whenever we would hear uh, the sound of bombs around us, she would try to reassure us, oh, it's fireworks, don't worry. But after five years, we had enough of it, and we had to stay together at least as a family. And that's when uh, my parents had to make a decision to flee the country, like millions of other refugees from Afghanistan who fled to Pakistan. We also had to take a very dangerous route to mountains, valleys, and rivers, on donkeys and horses, and at night time, because any activity that was seen during the day, the Soviet-backed government, the helicopter gunships and the jets would attack. People were not allowed to go to Pakistan. Once you got there, you were in a refugee camp. Yes, when we arrived, um, we were in a refugee camp. We were happy that we were finally safe and together. But sadly, the conditions were absolutely inhumane. As a family of eight, which turned on later on to be ten, we started living in a in a tent, like so many others. Within days, most of us got malaria. And the conditions in refugee camps are so inhumane that we were having just one fan for a family of eight, with temperatures rising up to 40, 45 degrees, um, not having uh, clean water. The only food we received was from kindly by the refugee agency. Uh, UN Refugee Agency. And those are the the ripe conditions for diseases. 
such as malaria and uh, other malnutrition-related illnesses that kill children. And they still do in refugee camps across the world. Mm. And before we get on to your own illness, which was a huge turning point in your life, uh, just a word about the politicisation of refugee camps themselves, because different factions are in charge of different camps. They are indeed in different countries. So the conditions vary. But people are there for one reason, and that's a common reason for them. They've left their homes, their relatives, their belongings to find safety. And they are there because they are safe. But that doesn't mean that they are safe mentally, mm. they are safe socially, that they are so safe physically in terms of healthcare. The conditions are not optimum. Maybe in few refugee camps here and there they might be. But they're not because mm. of our work. We work with refugees now as well. And it's incredibly sad to see them suffer. And I mean, it's just worth making the point again here that nobody goes into those conditions because they want to. It's because they have to. They are fleeing for their lives. You became very ill. You got tuberculosis. And in fact, this was, as I said, just something that utterly changed your life. It did. And so within three months in the, in the refugee camp in Pakistan, I started coughing and I started losing weight. I became a walking skeleton. And I was, coughing, I was coughing to the extent that even brought up blood. So my parents thought it's not the common cold. They took me to the local doctor. He examined me and he said I had to be taken to a specialist in the city. My father took me to a specialist in Peshawar City where he took an x-ray, put it against the white background and then asked me to stay outside. Uh, he spoke to my dad. I was a curious child, so I tried to listen to what he was saying. And he told my dad that I had 60-70% chance of dying because I had tuberculosis, which was pretty advanced. And I was so malnourished that my immune system couldn't fight back despite uh, medication. Uh, my father was silent in the beginning and then said, just don't tell me how my son and when my son would die. Just tell me how to save him. He took the prescription... And on the way back to refugee camp, I remember his tears dropping on me throughout on that bus journey. I didn't dare ask what was wrong with me because I knew it was something not good. But he went about trying to find a job. Um, in refugee camps, there are no jobs. So he had to go to faraway places to collect antiques or torn notes, bring them back to city centre in Pakistan, exchange them and make some money just to be able to afford meat, fruit and vegetable for me. Uh, as well as uh, milk, the basic stuff that could give me a bit of power to be able to fight back the illness along with my medication. He carried on for a year and a half, uh, and I became better every three months, every time I would visit the doctor. Uh, and during each visit, I started making a stronger bond with a doctor because I was looking forward to speaking with him. I knew that this person was healing me. On the other hand, I could also see that there were people are suffering, and this is the healer. So subconsciously, I was becoming inspired on each visit. Um, also, I didn't have any toys to play with, children to play with outside, so I became so curious about medicine that every time I was thinking about the visit, what he told me, how the body works and in brief moment. On the last visit, he gave me um, a stethoscope and black-and-white textbook and told me that uh, one day I would become a doctor and I would need them.
And absolutely you did, which is fantastic. The book takes us through the the beginnings of that, enrolling at Islamabad University, the inspiring teachers that you met there, going backwards and forwards to Afghanistan, until eventually it was decided that really you needed to get out of the country. Yes, so after the refugee camp in 91, we went back to Afghanistan because my father was above the military age. But sadly, in 92, the civil war broke out. And that was a street-by-street fighting uh, because of which we had to flee the, uh, our home in Kabul to different parts of the Kabul and also move to Peshawar, back and forth to uh, surrounding provinces as well, dodging bullets in the sky. A lot of the time was spent just fleeing for our lives, actually. And, of course, your education hugely interrupted, largely self-taught, mm. reading all of the time and also helping patch up the wounded on the way. Yes, the education happened in cellars mostly. Whatever books my father could uh, put his hands on from the streets of Kabul, he would bring them back to the cellars just to keep me entertained. He knew that I was inspired to do something with my life. And I would use a lamp, read them when we were hiding from, from the rockets. The schools were destroyed, hospitals were destroyed in that four-year time. And then the Taliban took over in 1996, Um, The system had already collapsed, but now the economy had crumbled to the extent that my father was driving a taxi for six months just to be able to afford a sack of rice for the family. And I had to drive that taxi for him sometimes when he would get too tired uh, in the year 1999 when I was 15 years old. And that's the time when we came to the realization that I was coming to an age where I could be asked to serve at the military, so my life was becoming in danger. And also, there was no hope for me to realize my future and and a dream to become a doctor. All those hopes or windows of hopes were closed on me. And that's when we decided that I decided that I had to leave the country. My parents were not ready yet. And they, one morning when we woke up, we found out that uh, one of our neighbor's house was completely flattened. And with that, All the people had gone, the people who we talked with the night before or a few days ago, the children who were there, they they, they had all gone. And that's when my parents said, "Okay, we might have enough money just to send you abroad to, to save your life and to give you a future. And you went through a travel agent, somebody that I guess we would recognize as a people trafficker. We looked for official routes, the the, uh, word official that we keep using here, or the word legal that we keep using here. And we looked for embassies, we went to the UN agencies. Uh, First of all, they didn't exist in Afghanistan. So in conflict zone, usually they don't exist, where there are bombs, there are no embassies. So you have to go to another country to look for them. And we went there to Pakistan, kept looking for them. There were no available routes. They still don't exist. I've got relatives in Afghanistan who want to flee. They can't find routes, the official routes. And that was the case with myself. And the only route available was through an agent who, uh, in our case, had a track record of sending people. But we didn't know the details. And we couldn't ask details because that was the only available route. My uh, parents sold the house, all the belongings, just to be able to afford Uh, the price of me being sent, not the entire family. And I think that takes me to another point is when we see single people coming in, sometimes, you know, most of the time, the entire family can't travel, whether it's too many children, it's unaffordable, 
or they don't, still don't want to leave their country despite the war, but they want to save just somebody mm. to be able to help them back. Yeah, and um, we demonize the fact that it's all, it's all young single men. Well, of course it is. They're mm. carrying the hopes of their family with them. Well, absolutely. And I was carrying the hopes of my family. I was the second in command after my father. Um, at age five, when he hit me in an oven from the rocket and shelling of the bombardment, uh, when we were on way to Pakistan, we came under the attack. So that's where he hit me in that oven before the, the bombardment started. He told me that if anything had happened to him, that I would be in charge of the family. And with that, my entire childhood was gone mm -hmm. because subconsciously now I was told that I should be an adult. So I never managed to play or do anything. So I took those hopes of my family, put it in the hands of an agent, and the, the agent sent me to, to the UK. I landed in the UK in 1999 uh, as a 15-year-old child refugee with no family, um, not much uh, formal education, and only $100. And went straight to prison? I did. I went to prison... Uh, because I didn't have the right documentation with me. And there was an incident on the plane as well. Um, it's pretty hilarious looking back at it now. Um, I was not being smart at all, or I was an idiot actually, because uh, <laughs> I, I was instructed to put my passport or destroy my passport upon arrival, but I tried to burn it on the in the plane and because I followed two other uh, teenagers who did that, and the whole thing was blamed on me. Um, so on up on arrival, I was arrested, sent to Feltham. But then there was a barrister who fought my corner and he argued that refugees, asylum seekers shouldn't be penalized because of the route they take. And that's true according to the UN Refugee Convention. The judge agreed. He dropped the charges uh, and I started a new life. And it was an incredible life. I mean, you were working three jobs. You were living in re really not very nice conditions, but working incredibly hard. And in fact, coming across really some very kind people. Absolutely. The first kind person was a family friend um, from Afghanistan who let me stay with him in his flat. And they tried to help me as well when I told them I want to become a doctor. How do I do that? And he sat with other fellow Afghan refugees and they decided that uh, the best thing for me to do would be to work in a chicken shop, then work as a cabbie and then own a chicken shop. Because they told me, frankly, that I didn't have an education. Uh, I came from Afghanistan. I needed to support the family and I shouldn't waste my time. So their heart was in the right place. And I know these are admirable jobs, but their vision for me was to become a chicken wing specialist, whereas I wanted to become a medical specialist. Mm -hmm. So I went about trying to figure out how to do that. And I uh, started working first. And I found incredibly kind people, my first boss, who despite me not having even an insurance number, uh, national insurance number, he gave me the job because he knew that so much relied on that. And then I found very kind people um, in college who tried to support me. And because I had to go from one college to another, work in three different jobs during the day and study in three different colleges at nighttime. So yes, there were people, very kind people along the way who helped me. And of course, all of this paid off. You landed up at Cambridge. I did. Um, initially, I was advised against it. So one of the tutors who was preparing me uh, told me, again, very frankly, that 
you are not white, you haven't been to a private school, and we don't even know if you've been to school or not. And frankly, I hadn't. So he was honest with me, and he said, don't burn your place. When I left that uh, interview preparation room uh, in King's Cross, where my college was, I was absolutely fuming. Uh, I was very upset, stomping up and down. But then I told myself that if the Russian bombs didn't scare me, Cambridge is not going to scare me. So I went, took a donut kebab along the way with me, went home and circled Cambridge at the top. Uh, and that's become my motto now. If somebody says that I couldn't do something or a problem couldn't be solved, I don't look at ways that it can't be solved. I simply look at ways it can be mm. and try it. Now, you did very well at Cambridge. You went on to study at Imperial. You spent a semester at Harvard. And of course, just racking up all these different qualifications along the way, you were studying much more than you needed to, getting different courses. But at this point, you also became aware of the fact that you had PTSD. And in fact, this followed a bit of a pattern because as a child, you'd also been depressed. And this issue of mental health, I think, is incredibly important when it comes to refugees, because many, many people suffer from PTSD or indeed depression simply because it's circumstantial. Uh, thanks very much for bringing that up. Uh, I'm a mental health advocate, and now I've got an initiative called uh, Aryan Wellbeing, uh, which uh, the, the aim of that is to connect people online to highly qualified, regulated and diverse mental health experts such as psychologists, therapists and PTs to improve people's mental health and the inspiration for that comes from my own PTSD uh, and when I started even Cambridge University or working in London I had signs of PTSD and those symptoms or signs were me when a bus red bus would keep coming at me I would see a tank uh, so that's a flashback and then I would have nightmares in the middle of the night I would wake up because a sniper would be taking my head off in my dream. I had to open the window to see that I was in London, I was safe. And the third sign I had was hypervigilance. My fist would always be tight and I, was, I would be sweating. I didn't know that it existed and I had self-diagnosed later on, but I carried on with those signs and symptoms during my studies at Cambridge and later on back in London and so on. So they... Healing happened for me that was later on when I became a doctor and I started working as a doctor and I was starting healing people. I could see the fruit of my hard work and I kept going back and forth to Afghanistan to help others as well through my philanthropic work. So that was one element of my healing. But the second one was that I sought professional help to psychologists and, and they told me that I had deep scars of, of traumas of, of conflict. So that was another one. And the third one was exercise. So which is why I've combined all those three exercise, therapy, as well as uh, the purpose and giving to uh, the building blocks of uh, Aryan well-being for me. But that takes me to another important point that yes, refugees, almost all of them, they suffer from PTSD, severe anxiety and depression. And people post COVID coming out from COVID as well, I think we shouldn't forget the non-refugee people who as a, as an A&E physician I've seen the crisis happening as well that families have been ripped apart I've seen so many people suffer directly from COVID and indirectly from the psychosocial measures the traumas and sadly there are not many solutions available there's a very long waiting list in the NHS and privately there are 
semi-qualified or unqualified and regulated people, or sometimes regulated but very expensive, they're supporting it. So all that has become an inspiration to, for me to tackle mental health through the area well-being. Now, that, of course, is not your only uh, philanthropic uh, activity. You started Aryan Telemedicine. Uh, now, telemedicine, as I understand it, or as you explain it in the book, can be synchronous or asynchronous. Tell us what it is and how it works and how your organisation helps people globally. So telemedicine, simply, it is connecting a medic from one place to a patient or a medic somewhere else online. It's as simple as that. Uh, so it could be done uh, synchronously, which is a direct life, or it could be asynchronous, there's a delay in between. So these are technical terms. But the reason why I came up with doing telemedicine in Afghanistan was in 2010, when I became a doctor, I kept going back and forth to help in any way I could, because I was inspired to help other people who were in refugee camps as well. And I soon realized that on my own, I couldn't achieve much because the suffering was still there. Despite the help in Afghanistan that was pouring into, the system was absolutely on its knees. And every time I would come back to the NHS, I would tell my colleagues they wanted to help too. Because of security and logistical problems, I couldn't take them with me. So the light bulb moment happened in 2015 when I noticed that my nephews, nieces and the hospital doctors were using smartphones and secure social media to chat with each other. And I thought, could we use, tap into this? Uh, and that was the beginning of Ariane Tallyheel, uh, telemedicine charity that now connects volunteer doctors from the NHS and across the world to medics in Afghanistan and giving specialist support. We have skilled to Syria, to African countries, and we have international partnerships with other international organizations and let them know how we operate so they can learn our lessons. But... The big part of that, of course, is helping people on the ground. And the side effect of that has been my own healing, which is an ongoing journey for PTSD, is I found peace with it, that every day there is something that I can do for people or that I see that our specialists are helping. I get rewarded, and that helps me. Writing the book in the wars itself has been a healing journey for me, opening up for I always been closed for such a long time uh, that even my wife found out after seven months or eight months together um, that we, we, we started seeing each other she found out that I had seven sisters I couldn't even tell her that I have seven sisters it's an extraordinary story and I wish that we had lots. I, mean, I really want to go into, for instance, about deciding to get married. That's a great story in the book. Uh, people will have to read it to find out about that. Um, I just want to talk a tiny bit about tech itself because tech can obviously be a huge force for good. But you point out in the book that, of course, you need human interaction and that not everyone has access. It's a good point. Technology is a means. I think innovation, a lot of the time we look at it the other way around. A lot of the companies, they come up with this advanced technologies and they look for problems. Uh, whereas innovation, in my view, and, and that is proven, is you have to find a problem. And if you're passionate about it, that's great because you can come up with creative ideas. The people experiencing the problem and then coming up with a solution adaptable to that. And a lot of the times that solution could be very simple. So if we can come up with the simplest solution, the better. Not the other way around to come up with really advanced technology and look, keep looking for problems. Because that 
will be only applicable to really advanced tech arena. Human interaction, as we say, is hugely important. And you say that, you know, there were you found a lot of compassion in your journey. And this book, I feel, is just this this huge cry for solidarity and for kindness. And as we look particularly at the here in Britain, where we are basically changing the law in order to be able to get rid of refugees from this country, it seems to me there's not an awful lot of compassion here. I would say that most of us have compassion, uh, and I've seen it myself. I've seen it and from the UK government when I arrived here. Uh, so many kind British people have helped me along the journey. And if you remove uh, a single one of those acts of kindness, my whole world might have not been the same now. The issue is that refugees and asylum seekers have been politicized. And that is the sad part. The politicization, weaponization of vulnerable refugees who don't have individual voices. They're locked away. They're counted as numbers, dehumanized. And that is an extremely sad part. And for political gains, keep using them is cruel, is inhumane. Mm -hmm. And that's something I beg not only the politicians, but the public as well, to try to remove the plasters of politics and keep looking at these people as human beings. I'm just one of them. I made it here and was given an opportunity to start a new life, having left everything behind, having taken an unofficial route. And I did that. And I managed to rebuild my life. And now I very proudly contribute to the frontline NHS as an emergency doctor and to the world at large. Other people, I do believe, have have their own talents, their own ambitions. What it could be anything, but they have to be given a fair chance to life as well, the same way as I was given. We're talking during Refugee Week, in fact, uh, here in, in in Britain. What can we as individuals do? I mean, we can protest at the law changes. We can pick it against Pretty Patel. We can take people into our homes. But is there anything meaningful? that we can do? Yes, each one of us has the power to, to make a change. I strongly believe in that. And collectively, if we come together, combine our compassion, whether it's through allowing refugees to settle with us in our own homes, give to the charities uh, who help refugees or help in conflict zone lawyers or settings, whether we have the power or the means or the connections to inform policies, I think there are so many ways we can help. It's not acting is something that, in my view, we can't just stand still and, and say, oh, it's for the politicians. Mm. We shouldn't do that. And this is something we can't sit on the fence. And, of course, we can give to your charity, which is Arian Teleheal. Yes, of course, it's one of the charities. Yes, yeah. of and course. All the details for that are, are in your book, of course, and, and on your website. Just before we go, I just wondered if you could give me a, a brief update on Afghanistan and your family there. The situation in Afghanistan is incredibly heartbreaking. Uh, this morning I woke up to the news that there has been an earthquake that killed hundreds of people, could be death that could be above a thousand. And this is on top of the humanitarian crisis that has absolutely come to a climax since last year, the regime change. Up to 95% of the population, they don't have access to enough food. Um, and I think more than half the population 
uh, are likely to be going into starvation. So the money is frozen, which I have no idea why, because you can't punish the the, the people because of who who is in power. We're talking about people who are reliant on donations, who are reliant on aid agencies and international aid. You suddenly take everything away from them. Of course, they're all going to fall down. Uh, my own family is there. My father is there. My sisters are there. Um, they husbands, their families, and they can't even afford anything for themselves. I keep sending money to them, along with my two other displaced brothers now who have become new refugees, two in the U.S., and a sister in Sweden who I met recently. I went and saw her. And it's it just shows that, for me personally, my own life has been repeated in front of me again. But also it shows that although prior to the regime change, things were not fine. There was corruption, insecurity and all that, but at least they were together. But our family, like so many other families, has completely disintegrated. And it keeps happening in Afghanistan. It keeps happening, sadly. We go in, interfere with bombs, and then we come out and wash our hands. And that is the sad reality in Afghanistan that, yes, we could claim that the West has gone in and poured so much money in, but yes, that was along with the bombs. The reality is that that interference was because of political reasons, not because we we went in for 20 years to help the people. But now... Everything we see is as a consequence, not 100%, but yes, there was war before that and so on. But the way we pulled out is is impacting the people. And that's where my heart breaks for the people. Do you have hope? Without hope, I couldn't be a humanitarian, so I always have hope. But it's sometimes when I speak with my father on the phone, we talk about the situation in Afghanistan. He breaks down and I break down. We both cry. And I've rarely seen him during war for him to break down. He is the optimist in the family. My late mother was more realist. She would be the one worried about things rightly. And my father would say everything would be okay. But for the past one year, he's been saying things won't be okay. And it's, it's incredibly affecting me as well. Well, I would urge everybody to, to buy this book, to read this book, uh, to take heart from some of the messages you put in it and absolutely to donate to your charity. Uh, in the Wars, From Afghanistan to the UK and Beyond, A Refugee's Story of Survival and Saving Lives is by Dr. Wahid Aryan. Thank you so much for coming to talk to me today. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Lillian Fawcett. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, MixCloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>